Hello, it's Monday, January the 24th, and this is the Andrew Pearce Show coming from the Daily Mail Newsroom. We're going to tell you how when you're doing housework, I do do some occasionally, you can do some proper keep fit exercises at the same time. Should the police really be involved in complaints from Tory MPs about being bullied or even blackmailed by the Whips office? Also, it seems, just hold your breath, that possibly that national insurance rise, the mayor's been campaigning against it, may not happen after all. We're reporting the entire cabinet seems to be against it. And what? The Prime Minister refused to be drawn on it today. But first, half the British embassy employees in the embassy in the Ukraine, in Kiev, have been withdrawn. Is that a sign that military conflict is about to start? I'm going to be speaking to a former British Army commander. Around half of the diplomatic staff stationed at the UK's outpost in Kiev are being withdrawn from the Ukraine due to the increasing fears Russia is on the point of invading. While the United States has also done the same, the European Union says they've no plans to withdraw their diplomats just yet. What does it all mean? Joining me now is Colonel Richard Kemp, who is the former chairman of COBRA and a former British Army commander. Colonel Kemp, um, with your COBRA hat on, you chaired COBRA, um, you will know, uh, they will know, they'll have the most up-to-date intelligence uh, data on what's happening in the Ukraine. Is that why you, do you think the diplomatic staff are being pulled out? Because we fear there is some form of imminent incursion. I don't think that uh, this necessarily indicates uh, an imminent invasion by Russia into Ukraine. Uh, I think the foreign office in deciding to do this is being uh, very cautious and perhaps understandably so given the extent of criticism they received for not withdrawing uh, non-critical members of the diplomatic uh, station in Kabul yeah. um, when, when we withdrew from Afghanistan in good time and, and, and left a bit of a panic situation. So I think I don't think we should consider this as an indication that there is intelligence that Russia is about to cross the border. I, I think it's more a, a, a cautious move. And of course, the embassy and critical staff remain there and remains open. Yeah, I mean, nobody really knows what's happening because um, it doesn't matter how many times the foreign minister of Russia gives a press conference. It's Vladimir Putin who calls all the shots in Russia. And we simply don't know if he's seeking some form of concessions from the United States and the European Union or if he's now backed himself into a corner and has to engage in some form of conflict. Um, I think Vladimir Putin is a very calculating and very clever man, despite his 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 other major faults and his aggression. But yeah. I, I, I suspect that what this what this whole thing is about is more about um, trying to pressurize NATO into maybe withdrawing some of its forces from um, from the east of Europe and eastern members, the Baltics and Poland, and also from Ukraine, um, and and trying to do everything he can to to make it clear that it's unacceptable, it will be unacceptable for Ukraine to join NATO, which, of course, Ukraine wants to do. And I think that's more what it's about. Plus, I think, you know, also maybe a secondary um, intention is is to make it very clear that uh, that Russia remains a big danger and it's essential that countries such as Germany, particularly Germany, um, you know, continue to cooperate with Russia over the, the gas pipeline, which is extremely important both to Germany's economy, Germany's economy and Russia's. Yeah, and of course, the whole thing also plays out very well at home. Putin's very popular in Russia among most most Russians, um, and this kind of 
you know, what, what we might think is saber-rattling against Ukraine, I think uh, is very popular in Russia. Does he genuinely think, do you think, I mean, is there any genuine belief that just because NATO has put a lot more troops in the areas around the Baltic states near, nearer to Russia, that, does, does Vladimir Putin really think there's going to be some form of military action authorised by NATO? Then no way they're going to invade Russia or going to invade the Ukraine. No, I think you're right. Absolutely right. I think he, but it, but Russians, you know, to an extent, understandably, and I, I certainly don't think these this action on Ukraine's border or indeed the 2014 seizure of the Crimea were 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 right in any way. But 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 Russians Russians do have an obsession with their eastern border and with maintaining a buffer against uh, sorry their western border and maintaining a buff, buffer against the west because while you and I may believe probably rightly that that there's no prospect of any offensive action or aggressive aggressive action by nato towards russia it may be that that many russians think differently and perhaps you perhaps putin does as well and of course he wants you know he's said many times that he wishes to restore uh, the former soviet union in some form and and therefore to to have his influence and his uh, his power in any way reduced on his eastern borders i think he sees as a a threat to that, uh, or a limitation at least, on that uh, that uh, aspiration. Uh, and for Britain, we've sent in military uh, hardware, Colonel Kemp. We've sent uh, military personnel in to train the Ukrainians. Uh, that's probably going to be the limit of our involvement, I would think. Don't you? I think probably um, we we do have we have about a hundred British troops on a training mission in in Ukraine, and we've just sent another thirty plus. A couple of thousand anti-tank missiles, anti-tank weapon systems to to, to Ukraine to to enable them to defend themselves should there be an attack. Um, and I think we also do have surveillance assets, I believe, in Ukraine. Uh, and no doubt we are supporting the Ukrainians with intelligence, but I don't think it's likely to go much beyond that. But possibly an increase in weapon supplies, if if particularly if Russia does invade, to help them to resist an invasion. Um, and, and again, you know, intelligence support, possibly special forces to help the Ukrainians, perhaps unlikely, but a possibility. I don't think it will go any further than that. Just finally on that, Colonel Kemp, uh, you've been you're a military man. You were in Afghanistan. If Russia does decide to invade in however limited or extensive the, in, the incursion is, the Ukraine, it's David versus Goliath. They couldn't possibly stand up to Russia, could they? Well, I think they could certainly, if they had the will, they could inflict severe damage on Russian troops invading, both by their own armed forces and also by a, a broader resistance movement. If they were, if they had in mind to put one in, there's plenty, they've got plenty of small arms. They've got, they've got ways within Ukraine of making it extremely difficult for Russia to, to not, not only to succeed but then also to occupy the country without probably severe Russian casualties. So. Yeah, I think I think you're right that, that the Russian army could overwhelm uh, the Ukrainian armed forces probably relatively quickly, but that that would could lead on then to a, a an extended guerrilla campaign against the Russian forces, which I don't think Ru- Russia is obviously well aware that's a possibility and wouldn't want that to happen. I don't think you know I think that the last thing they need is to be drawn into a another quagmire such as you know they, they've had in, in other countries in the past. Yeah, I mean, you're thinking Afghanistan. Well, Afghanistan is one example, yes, and and um, 
you know, we, we've seen, we, we saw what happened to our own forces in Afghanistan as well as the Russians more recently, where, you know, it was very hard even just despite our, you know, and together with our allies, our great numerical and combat power superiority, it was very hard to, to avoid taking quite a large number of casualties from, from you know, from guerrillas and insurgents. Indeed. That's uh, Colonel Richard Kemp. He's a former chairman of the Cobra Intelligence Committee and, of course, he was a British Army commander. Thanks for joining us. Visit mailplus.co.uk to listen to The Andrew Pierce Show for free, in full, and our other podcasts and video series. Remember to tell your Alexa speaker to play Daily Mail News. So there is growing resistance in the Cabinet, let alone on the Tory backbenches, to the planned rise in national insurance, which the government is introducing in April. Business leaders are saying it will harm economic recovery from COVID, and the entire Cabinet, according to the Daily Mail front page today, is in favour of scrapping the increase. The Prime Minister today, out and about, was doorstepped by a camera crew and pointedly refused to be drawn on national insurance. Harriet Lyon is chief political correspondent for the Daily Mail and she joins you now. Harriet, it seems to me, uh, dare I say it, it feels like there's something in the wind that the Prime Minister is moving towards either a delay or something to do with national insurance or some major announcement on the cost of living crisis. You definitely get that sense. I mean, there's no doubt the government's going to have to do something in order to tackle the cost of living crisis. There's not a lot that they can do about the more international picture, which is what affects energy prices. Uh, But they can deal with domestic policy in the easiest way, perhaps, to make a big difference is to not exacerbate that problem by increasing national insurance contributions, which will add hundreds of pounds to many families' uh, tax bill before they even receive their pay packets. So it seems like a pretty obvious choice. But the problem facing the government, of course, is that the money for the NHS that they've earmarked has effectively already been spent. So that money, £12 billion, has got to come from somewhere. And while the Prime Minister didn't, uh, didn't expressly back that rise going ahead in April today, he did make that point that the government needs to find that money from somewhere. And it's a question of what is the palatable way to, uh, to find that so one option would be, I was talking to Ed Balls, the former Labour uh, uh, Treasury Minister, uh, and it was, of course, Gordon Brown's number one advisor when he was Chancellor. He said the, the, pain, the most painless way for the government to do it would be to delay it. But if, the longer they delay it, the closer when it does come in, the closer it will be to the date of the next general election. Exactly. And I think delaying is, is never going to be a good time to bring this in. So no. what really is the point in delaying it? Why not rethink it entirely? At least that's the point that's been made to me by some government insiders. It's, you know, delay is not really an option. You've either got to grasp the net or, or you've got to change the policy entirely. And um, the, the Prime Minister, if he did um, scupper the rise in national insurance, this would be rather clever for him because while there was some suggestion in the Sunday papers at the weekend, Harriet, that the Chancellor Rishi Sunak is sort of trying to put distance between himself and the national insurance rise, as Chancellor of the Exchequer, he introduced it in, in the Commons. It's his rise. If Boris then scuppers it, he can um, potentially cause some damage to Sunak. Now, why would a Tory Prime Minister want to damage his Chancellor? Because Sunak is breathing down his neck for the leadership. That's why. Yeah, I think there's no doubt about that. I mean, number 10, very uh, cautiously not wanting to make this a row about uh, the two two neighbours, Chancellor and Prime Minister, but it would inflict damage on the Chancellor. There were some reports in the men on Sunday, actually, on over the weekend that the Chancellor had referred to it as the PM's tax. Yes. Now, I understood that those reports were being sort of pushed back on. Uh, number 11, not very keen uh, to portray it as such. Um, but what they did point to was that it was the Prime Minister's 
social care plan, uh, which, of course, is, as you mentioned, is something the Prime Minister is very proud of and something he wants his legacy to be. So you've got to, he's got to somehow square, maybe not charging people national insurance, but still going ahead with this uh, new social care plan, which is very long overdue and is something yeah. I've called for for a long time. Of course, just finally on that, Harriet, most of the £12 billion that the national insurance rise would generate was not going to go to social care at all. It was going to go to the quite laudable aim of cutting NHS waiting lists. Yes, but that's just for the first three years. Sure. So uh, it would initially go to help NHS waiting lists, that backlog, uh, enormous backlog, uh, which, yeah, is a very laudable cause. But uh, the big question is about how are you actually going to claw that money back and then start spending it on social care. So the big question marks when this policy was announced as to whether it really ever would end up being in social care or with the NHS just kind of envelop at all. Indeed. Uh, That is one, as we say in the game, to watch. Uh, We'll keep you up to date on that. That's Harriet Lyne, who is Chief Political Correspondent for the Daily Mail. Thanks for joining us. Visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to our podcast, videos, opinion pieces and much more. If you want to get in touch, tweet us at mailplus or me at Tory Boy Pierce. So the Conservative MP William Ragg will be interviewed at some point this week by the Metropolitan Police. He says because he's been blackmailed or allegedly blackmailed by conservative whips to try to vote in a certain way he said there were threats about money being withheld from from constituency projects this comes as there is also uh, pressure on the metropolitan police to look at its have its own investigation into Partygate, whatever the findings of the report by the civil servant sue gray which is due to be published this week i'm joined now by um uh, dr matt ashby now he's a former police officer and he's a lecturer in security and crime science at university college london uh, dr ashby um look i've been writing about these mps uh, in and out of westminster for the best part of 30 years if not more it's always been part of my understanding of the way the whips operate. They're rough, they're tough, and it goes with the territory. I think the, um, there's certainly been a tendency over the last few years for um, politicians to, to try to involve the police uh, in in what what might be described as political matters and to almost yeah. draw the police into being, to, uh, to, to try to make uh, the Met in particular the referee yeah. of politics on more and more issues. And I think that the Met are quite reluctant to be dragged into that role and probably feel that political disputes should have political resolutions to them. Uh, But that's obviously a difficult balancing act to strike because some political disputes may also involve people committing criminal offences. Yeah, and I remember, and you'll remember it too, when Tony Blair was Prime Minister, there was a long-running investigation called Cash for Honours and the police actually went into Number 10 and interviewed Tony Blair. Um, No action was taken. uh, And uh, I'm not saying, I mean, I'm not saying for a moment that the Labour Party was selling honours in return for political donations, but um, it is interesting that in their House of Lords, there are a number of major donors to all the political parties who are now sitting on the red leather benches. And, and there was also the police investigation that, that led to uh, raiding Damien Green MP's right. um, office in in Parliament um, and the uh, the dispute between the, the police um, and uh, and a minister who was told to uh, to take his bike, I think, through a different entrance right. into into right. Downing Street. And so the, the police yeah. are yes, the police are often on the edge of of politics, um, but perhaps are reluctant to be to be pulled in. 
um, when when they can avoid it. Because it's 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 very difficult because um, uh, for the police, I mean, we, they, their their job is to keep us safe and to investigate crime. But when, um, uh, for instance, perhaps a, uh, a a whip of of any political persuasion may be seen to perhaps overstepping the mark, is that really a criminal matter? Isn't that something I think the police would think is better best dealt with within the confines of the Palace of Westminster? Yes. I mean, you might feel that in an ideal world that the police would investigate every allegation of every crime. But it's always been the case that police have to prioritise what they work on. And the Met may well feel that if if they're trying to prioritise reducing violent crime, protecting London from from terrorists, Mm. uh, that those that those things that, that what they don't want is uh, at a senior level being potentially distracted by um, these uh, these political allegations. That said, of course, um, if crimes have happened, it's not unreasonable that, that police expect that uh, that they that people expect that the police investigate them. Of course, a lot of the stuff that goes on at Westminster will be hearsay because most of the conversation I'm aware of, uh, Dr Ashby, between whips and MPs are vocal, they're spoken, they're not often put in writing, uh, uh, and often it's um, when they whisper dark threats in dark corners of the Palace of Westminster. Yes, and it's um, it, it, there are lots of, uh, lots of cases that come down to what one person says uh, yeah. versus what another person says. Um, and those cases are, are quite difficult to prosecute at court. So, again, that, that's another reason why the Met may be reluctant. Uh, I'm not saying that these are good reasons. I'm just uh, just trying to, to help people understand yeah. I, I, I what guess, the reason might be. Yeah, I guess with Partygate, just finally on this, uh, Dr Ashby, we know that throughout the pandemic, a number of people were prosecuted and fined for breaking the rules. Um, if there is a perception in the country at large that the rules were broken at 10 Downing Street, the cut, which is after all where the rules were made, that's where the laws were well, not passed, the laws were passed in Parliament, but they were the, the, the law was dreamed up or created in Downing Street, there may be perhaps more pressure on the police to then go in and say, we've prosecuted a number of other people for breaching the rules. Uh, it appears there has been a breach of the rules. We're going to investigate. Uh, I, I think if I was somebody who'd been fined £10,000 for having a party and then found out that the people who wrote that law were themselves having parties sometimes on the same yeah. day, then I think I would I would feel very aggrieved and I think I'd be reasonable to feel that way. It also makes it more difficult for the police to enforce uh, these restrictions. The, the current lot of COVID restrictions are, are due to go away shortly and we obviously all hope that there won't be any more. But if there had to be more restrictions next winter Mm. perhaps then it would be increasingly difficult for the police to enforce those when they knock on someone's door say you shouldn't be having a party and the person quite reasonably replies well the prime minister did it why shouldn't i yeah it's a very compelling answer isn't it um exactly uh that's dr matt ashby he's a former police officer and he's a lecturer in security and crime science at university college london thanks so much for joining us Deputy sports editor Matt Gatwood's here with the latest sports news. Well, that London derby, 
easy peasy for Chelsea, wasn't it? Well, it, w- it was in the end. Yeah, it was uh, a comfortable, a comfortable win, two nil um, for Chelsea. And uh, yeah, I think really, you know, we expected it because Antonio Conte, since he's been at Tottenham, has certainly given them more fight, more backbone. Um, they've had a couple of uh, impressive wins recently, including the one on uh, last Wednesday when they beat Leicester uh, when they were trailing in the 95th minute and managed mm. to score twice in injury mm. time. And we thought. Um, that would give them a boost going into this game against a team who, uh, you know, of course, they're, you know, one of their main rivals. Um, but it wasn't. It was pretty flat. It was uh, it was one-way traffic, really. And, and apart from one incident where Harry Kane thought he'd scored early on, uh, which we'll come to, uh, it, it was fairly comfortable for Chelsea. Score, Ziyech scored a wonderful goal, which he curl, curled into the top corner. From that moment on, Chelsea were very comfortable. Um uh, so Conte, you know, failed again. Uh, well, to get one over his old club, mm. uh, who of course he fell out with. So uh, it keeps Chelsea. It keeps Chelsea in the, top in, four. in the hunt. Yeah, very much in the hunt for top four, and it makes Tottenham's job harder. But that's going to be an interesting race for the top four position. Yeah. And Tottenham can't be too disappointed. That's their first league loss under Conte, who's been there a while now. So they shouldn't be too down about it. Okay, VAR took centre stage again, and that was all to do with Harry Kane's disallowed goal. Well, it was to do with Harry Kane's disallowed goal, and also. So there was a goal in the he's Liverpool the game. Tottenham captain. So the Tottenham captain, centre England forward, captain England still. captain still. Right. Actually, he's not the Tottenham captain. Oh. That's Hugo Lloris. He's the England captain. Right. Uh, so in this game, at nil-nil, um, he had a chance where the ball was pulled back to him. He put his hand into the back of the Chelsea defender, Thiago Silva, who went down like he'd been shot from afar. Uh, and VAR, uh, and the, well, the goal was disallowed and VAR refused, refused to overturn it. I mean, you know, honestly... He was trying that, to win a Golden Globe, wasn't he? Well, if that had happened in the penalty area in a corner or something, it would have been mm. nothing. I mean, look, a lot of the referees who, who uh, pundits these days, including our own Mark Clattenburg, said that the referees got it right by the letter of the law because he put his hand in his back. But... Tiago definitely, he's a 37-year-old uh, defender, Tiago, and he definitely used his experience uh, in winning that free kick, much to the annoyance of the of the Tottenham players. But the bigger one, really, the most annoying one was in the uh, Crystal Palace-Liverpool game where Jota won a penalty for Liverpool, which, you know, just absolutely no way in a million years could it have been a penalty. The referee said no penalty. Then he was told to go and look at his pitch side monitor. And, you know, everyone else looking at it said, well, that's never a penalty. And the referee overturned his decision and gave a penalty to Liverpool. They were 2-1 up at the time, but the momentum was very much with Crystal Palace. And Liverpool scored the penalty 3-1, game over. Uh, so, you know, you just think, well, why is VAR getting involved with that? That's not a clear and obvious no. error, which is what VAR was meant to be introduced for. It was very subjective, probably got the right decision in the first place. And yet five minutes of looking at a screen going back and forth forth killing all the passion from the game they came to this wrong decision in most people's eyes so yeah poor weekend for VAR really poor weekend for your team Arsenal too oh, I thought we weren't going to talk no, about no, that necessarily that. now just remind me Arsenal are one of the Premier League's aristocrats yes and they're up against Burnley who are currently languishing at the bottom of the Premier League the very bottom nil nil you'd want your money back wouldn't you <laughs> you probably would if you'd bothered to go um yeah, good result for Burnley. You know, mm. Burnley came with a plan to to leave with a point, so very much yeah. set up defensively. I saw of, a tweet a bit, from somebody else saying, "Why can't we score against the worst team in the I'd Premier say, League?" But a bit, you know, a bit anti-football from Burnley to come and you know have no intention of scoring themselves. And of course, Arsenal got prob- a point, didn't they? They did get a point. Yeah, no, it was not a good result for Arsenal. It was a bit of a hammer blow, really, because in the race for the top four, which they're trying to get into, uh, it would have been a, a you know that would have been mm. your, your home banker. Um, so it makes their job. A, 
uh, getting into the top four much harder. So, yeah, they will regret that. There's now a big break. We're now into a Premier League break. The oh. um, the devastated, uh, obviously. Yeah, the, I, I thought you might be. This is the winter break now, so oh, they don't okay. play for a, about a couple of weeks, really. They work so hard. These they do work hard. They, they do work salaries. hard, and they get paid such a small yeah, amount. I know. They, I know. Um, they deserve yeah. it. So, so Arsenal are now off on a, to a warm so, weather break. So, the, so the, is the entire Football League off, or just the Premier League? Just the Premier League. So they're most overpaid. Uh, this with the smallest league and they get a couple of weeks off but the lower divisions which are bigger leagues get paid nothing like the money they have to carry on <laughs> yes that's why right, do yeah. they indulge these ridiculous prima donnas well they're tired you know they've been playing non-stop and then oh. they'll be playing non-stop again because right. they're going away on a warm winter tour which is going to earn them what a lot of money no well that's something that they don't allow them to do if they go off and play lucrative friendly matches during right. this winter break that is frowned upon right. so it's meant to be uh, you know all about rest and relaxation and do they go away as a team they go away as a team yeah and uh, and I mean they may be given a few days off either side of going mm. away for a, a, a warm weather sort of light training break you'd right. have thought you know so it, it's um, it, it won't be um, it won't be like you know the Arsenal work. manager should have cancelled their warm weather trip and said you're going to train in Arsenal <laughs> on the hard, solid, icy pitch. You are harsh to these. Well, then they will. They might play a bit better. Now, finally, we've won in the Windies, so that's the West Indies cricket. Yes, so but England, not the Test team because they don't win anything. Exactly, not the Test team. So you know, we like to say that the cricket calendar. You know, so literally five days after the Ashes finished, uh, England were playing again in a mm. T20 series, which they're in the West Indies for uh, a five uh, five match. Uh, T20 series so they lost the first one got hammered in the first one mm. and then last night won but almost managed to throw it away so they almost had set West Indies um, too many to get but some terrible bowling at the end meant that the West Indies um, where England ended up winning by just one run uh, in what was an exciting finish which shouldn't have been so England need to look at the way they're bowling mm. in the T20 format uh, and they're obviously trying things out at the moment but um, there was some very poor bowling by Mahmood at the end um, a couple of good performances, so Topley bowled well. So there's some positives, but um, but yes, it wasn't uh, the convincing performance that you'd expect from a team who, you know, hope to be one of the best in the world in a T20 yeah, format. And, and, and they're um, playing in a nice warm climate. They are, it looked lovely, oh, honestly. He'd rather be there than here at the moment. Oh, I don't know about that. What's wrong with Kensington <laughs> in um, the middle of January? Or Barbados, yeah. Or Barbados. Yeah, I suppose it's a bit of a toss-up. That's yeah. Matt Gatwood, who's remarkably cheerful considering his team messed up again, Arsenal. <laughs> Happy to talk to you. And you, thank you. Thank you. Liz Hurley claims she maintains her extraordinary movie star physique not by going to the gym, as you might suspect, but by performing household chores and gardening by way of a method of keeping fit called found fitness. It involves doing squats, for instance, while brushing your teeth. The journalist and host of the Your Booked podcast, Daisy Buchanan, has been experimenting with found fitness, and she's written a very entertaining piece in the mail today about it, and she joins me now. So, Daisy, are you one for doing squats while you're brushing your teeth? Well, since I found out that that's how Liz Hurley keeps fit, I thought it's worth a try. So I have been doing the toothbrush squats. And how and how does it how does it work? Does it work for you? Is it, do you feel better when you've done it? Do you manage to do your teeth properly? I do. It's great because I think, like so many people, I do go to the gym, but I dread it. I struggle to make time for it. It does seem to be quite a. It really sort of drains the day. So it's lovely because. Um, 
brushing my teeth jogs my memory and I think oh this is what Liz does and um, it doesn't take too long and um, it's good as well I use an electric toothbrush and um, so there's like a timer I guess it's like doing a hit routine isn't it when you yeah start, it's going to be three minutes of squats I'm going to have to try it. Now, you have also do gardening. Uh, so you are a gardener and you make the point in your piece, um, Julia, Liz Hurley likes gardening. You do too. So you say you're, you're, you're working from the waste, which is great for the core. It's true. Well, um, Julia Buckley, who is a fab trainer, who does brilliant videos, and she does a six weeks to fitness program at right. the moment in January. And it actually works with her routine. So I've been doing her video, but I found that the raking is quite a good way of incorporating some of the stuff that she recommends. And you can really feel the core and the muscles. It's quite mindful. It's nice to kind of really think about what you're working out and what you're doing. And of course, being outside as well is wonderful. I think, you know, especially now, it's always nice to um you know feel a bit safer outside and um, yeah you know, being around other people at the gym it's just being in your back garden getting on with it it's sort of it's double virtuous isn't it because not only are you tidying up the garden you're um improving your um fitness exactly it's a win-win it's very yeah efficient. Now, look, I'm not a great shopper, so this would be a struggle for me. And it's talking about super shopping. Now, I imagine Liz Hurley, um, when she goes shopping, she probably has to uh, load up the Rolls Royce when she's finished shopping. I don't know how that is for you, but um, she apparently, according to your piece, she's a fan of Lidl and carries her own bags when she's been to the supermarket. Did you follow her example? I was delighted to see that, um, and I think as well that everything when you do a supermarket shop, if you're you know, getting lots of pins and things, really, looking yeah. up, everything's a mini weight, really. So um, I, um, my local supermarket, I like to, to walk home, um, yeah. and Julius as well, you can get quite a good pumping action if you're kind of, you know, swinging bags, and then, of course, you get another workout on top of that when you're putting everything in the way in the cupboard, you're sort of, you know, reaching out and lifting your weight and it's a good full body toning exercise yeah now what about mirror muscles what's that about so liz hurley apparently as part of her found fitness workout she recommends cleaning her mirror um i've got a big uh, full uh, wardrobe sliding door affair yeah i've got lots of mirror to to clean and polish um and I don't know exactly how Liz does it, but I was standing on a chair to get the top bits and I thought, oh, this is like doing step exercises at the gym. Um, and again, to be honest, I am someone who doesn't always love um, cleaning up, certainly not cleaning the mirror. And if something's kind of out of reach, I think, oh, it's, I'll just leave that. It's, Do that it's next week. I won't bother. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, as you say, I felt doubly virtuous having yes. got into those awkward bits of a duster and doing a bit of toning as well. Now, finally, yoga in the kitchen. I love this idea of when you're washing up, you've done a version of the tree pose, balancing on one leg to try to strengthen your thigh, ankle and calf. You've got to take us through that if you can bear to, Daisy. Well, what's so interesting, I didn't realise this about yoga until recently. I think it was uh, Michael Mosley who said that the connection between our brains and our bodies and our balance is so powerful and it's not just about toning our bodies which I'm always very keen on but also about really developing our sort of our our mental skills I think to be able to hold that balance and hold that pose and do that when you're focusing on something else I mean if I'm honest when I was doing the tree pose and lifting my leg and standing on my leg and doing washing up um I did get quite messy (laughs) I did spill quite a lot of water and I got quite a lot of um very liquid on myself but I think with a bit of practice, I can perfect that one. 
Um, so, and it was good fun. It's worth a try. Yeah, I bet you Liz Hurley doesn't do the washing up, though. <laughs> I don't know. I sort of want to believe she does, and she's there immaculate in her white jeans with her perfect hair, just sort yeah. of getting stuck in, but, all, you know, managing to make everything glossy and spotless without spilling water on the floor. But, yeah, probably not. <laughs> yeah, I did see uh, a few, uh, before lockdown, or whichever lockdown it was, I can't remember days, it all blurs, doesn't it? I, she was in the same restaurant as me. She ate, like, um, a lettuce, uh, about two leaves of lettuce for her starter and about four for her main course. She does, she really is deadly serious about staying slim and uh, looking great. Oh, wow. I mean, I'm not sure I could do that, especially in the winter months. I think no. I'm cheap on just potatoes, but she does look incredible. She does look absolutely stunning. She did. She did. Even though the person I was with said, who's that? <laughs> I was with a politician. They never know anybody unless they're um, uh, in, in, shouting and hollering at each other in the in the House of Commons chamber, Daisy. They're hopeless, aren't they? Oh, really? Goodness. Um, yeah. I mean, the gossip's too much fun. And I think, you know, Liz's um, Instagram is one of my favourite places to go on each other. So, you know, anyone who isn't following her is, I think, missing out. Well, I'll have a look. I'll have a look. And, and, and I'm encouraging people to have a look at Daisy Buchanan's fine piece in the mail today. It's all about found fitness and how she's enjoying it. And Liz Hurley has been pioneering it. That's the journalist Daisy Buchanan, who's also the host of the Your Booked podcast. <laughs> That's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app. Every weekday at 5pm you can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pierce. This is The Andrew Pierce Show. I'll be back tomorrow. Have yourselves a great evening and good night. Good night.